Hey everyone, before we jump in, I just want to warn you that today's episode contains content and stories that may be alarming to some listeners. So please check the show notes for more detailed descriptions. Thanks so much. This episode of What's Underneath Masculinity is made possible with the support of BetterHelp. If you want to start therapy, give BetterHelp a try and head to betterhelp.com slash what's underneath for 10% off your first month. All the plans that I wanted to do crystallized in my head. I knew what I was going to do. I was going to go into the, either the school and attack the school food court, or I was going to go to the mall and attack the mall food court. So I was waiting three days to get the gun. And I went to Mike at the end of that three days. And when I knocked on his door, I was in tears. He brought me inside and he sat me down and gave me some food, gave me a shower. And he kept on telling me, you're a good kid in a shit world. What he really did was he put the tiny granular bits of humanity back on the bottom shelf of my life. Hey everybody, it's Jamie Heath. And I'm Justin Baldoni. Welcome to Man Enough. You're probably aware that you are now tuning in to our brand new series, which we launched last week. We partnered with the popular YouTube channel Style Like You. And every Thursday through the end of the year, we are presenting What's Underneath Masculinity, presented by BetterHelp. Today, you're going to meet Aaron Stark. Aaron is a mental health and gun control advocate with an incredible life story that we felt we had to bring to the Man Enough community. In 1996, in the middle of experiencing homelessness, dealing with a violent and traumatic upbringing, Aaron planned a school shooting at his local high school. Fortunately, he did not complete the mass shooting, my goodness, and we'll let you listen to him tell the beautiful reason why. Up until 2018, he's kept his story private, but one day after the Parkland school shooting, he felt compelled to help the world understand just how struggling boys could potentially get to that point. And trust us, it might sound heavy, it is at times, but this is one of the most hopeful and uplifting stories we've heard in a long time. If you want to see Aaron tell his story, you can check out the Style Like You YouTube channel and watch the shorter video version. So please let us know what you think of this one on our socials, which is at We Are Mad Enough. All right, let's dive in. So can you begin by talking about how you feel right now? I feel nervous and excited. Why I'm mostly excited. The way I always talk about it is it feels like I'm on a cliff and I'm wearing wax wings and I'm about to jump off and I gotta make sure I don't fly too close to the sun so my wings don't melt. And today the cliff is higher than normal. I think I'll do fine. I know it'll be good. It's just, yeah, the, the excitement of the new. What makes you excited about it? I've found a lot of power in being vulnerable with what I've been doing. The first time I did open up about my own life and my history and my, all the pain I went through growing up, it was like a giant weight jumped off my chest. I, I went to people that hurt me and told them like, hey, this is what happened. And that was like the first part of my recovery in my life. I've emotionally exposed myself to everybody, but I've never exposed myself physically before. I had a bunch of body issues in my life. I was 500 pounds, not but five years ago. And so I have scars and yeah, extra belly skin. And so it's, it's been quite the journey. And I think that this is a great next step. Well, we're honored that you're taking it with us. Should you take a hat or jacket either? Hat? Okay. Hat. Uh, that helps a lot actually. It instantly makes it a lot cooler. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about what your style says about you? I never really thought about having a style in my life. I always kind of just wore whatever I had. I like to be as normal and everyday as possible. I've gotten the chance to recently to go speak to some really high federal agencies. I did a presentation for the FBI. And when I went into them, it was down in Florida. So I just dressed up regular. I'm at the beach, it's really hot. So I wear shorts and I go to the event and this agent walked up and was like, dude, my boss would never let me wear shorts here. Man, you're a special agent in charge, must be loving you. I, I could never get away with that. And then I get up on stage and I give my speech and I get off, it's like, that's why you wore shorts. And so ever since then, I figured that's kind of like a cool little cheat code. So I wear my shorts and try to dress as regular as possible. And my main style personally is comfort. I wear whatever's comfortable. I'm a big superhero fan, so. Usually Marvel comic shirts and... What about your bandana? 
Uh, well, my bandana is really important to me because I have a trans son. Also, my uh, wife's father was trans. It's been a really important thing in our, in our family to be accepting and honest and truthful. For my kid to know he's not a crime. <laughs> like, currently there's a lot of, of anti-trans and anti-gay hate going around, and he's been hit with some of it. And we do our best to make sure we tell him he's all right. I, I usually wear it when I'm going to places that are very deep red. The first time it happened, I went, I worked in that, that Florida trip, and this little old lady walked ne up next to me and put her hand on my shoulder and said, dear, I support your rights. I was like, well, thanks, old lady. I support your rights, too. So I told my son, Kai, that. And he's like, well, that's awesome, Dad. Keep doing that. And so, yeah. Have you been met with any, like, hostility or...? I haven't, personally. I've been kind of the interjector into hostility. It's been more of the situation where I encounter hostility and then I step up and like, oh, really? Because that's what I'm doing. I think it's because people who have that kind of anger and animosity, they don't like being confronted by someone that fits their stereotype. Like, I'm, I'm a big hairy dude. So it, it's not the same as yelling at my 14-year-old trans son. I, I think that those stereotypes that we have are one of the biggest things that I'm trying to break. And if someone looks at me and thinks I'm gay because I'm wearing a bandana and then wants to judge me for it, you go right on ahead, dude. You want, you want to bring your anti-trans arguments with me, I'll stand there and argue with you. Okay. Your sweatshirt, sure. yeah. Even that would have been a letter. Oh. All right. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the assumptions that people make about you based on how you look? If you look at me just cold, you might think that I am some angry metalhead or some, hey dude, what, what you doing over there kind of guy. And instead, I like breaking those conventions by explaining a concept of, in really interesting ways. I'm a big science nut. So whenever I feel like I'm getting judged as like, oh yeah, sure, yeah, you don't know, you're just some big hairy dude. Like I'll like, okay, well, do you know what a five-dimensional hypercube is? Because if you take the four dimensions of space and, and you have me, <laughs> like, I'll totally break down the physics concept. Why do you think that people think that you're like um, whatever kind of guy? Just from the stereotypes. I think that we all stereotype instantly. Before, I would think people, when they looked at me, would think, yeah, you're just a fat, dirty, smelly idiot that can't talk. Just because I was... I was fat. At the time, I was also 500 pounds. I was really large and unhealthy, and it just fit the stereotype. But always in my brain, I thought I was smart. I think that people don't assume that I'm as smart as I am. I do. I think that when people look at me, they, don't, they judge me as I'm not as smart as I am, that I'm not as capable as I am, and possibly that I'm more capable in other areas than I actually am. Now, why do they think you're not smart, and why do they think you're capable of other things? First off, I've never driven a car, okay? 44 years old and I've never driven a car. I can't fix things, I'm not mechanically inclined, but intellectually, I suck in information like a sponge. So I'm constantly listening to like science audiobooks and history, philosophy and religion and politics and all this kind of stuff. My day job, I work at a gas station in Denver. And so in my day job, I get a lot of conversations with people when they're coming up to me that'll be like, hey, so I got this F-150 out there, man. It's got all these, these things. And, all, and I'm like, dude, I am auto illiterate. I have no idea what you just said to me. But that's after a couple of minutes of them assuming that, ah, oh, he's a big hairy dude, works at the gas station. He knows all about this. I don't know anything what you're telling me, man. I just don't have that kind of engagement. Same thing with sports. People will come up like, oh, did you see the college game and all this? I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. But you want to hear a cool fact about the Big Bang? <laughs> I always feel like my own personal identity doesn't match what I'm pushing out. But I find a lot of enjoyment in that because the look that I get after I've explained what a five-dimensional hypercube is is pretty cool. I don't think I have the ability in me to get embarrassed or ashamed about anything. I, just, I think I burned it out when I was a kid. I spent my life insulting myself more than anybody else around me. If you had a fat joke, I had five fat jokes that were better than your fat joke. And if you told me how terrible I was, then it wasn't anything close to how terrible I would say I was afterwards. I used it as a big defense mechanism to keep people away from because when I would do that, it would stop fights and it would stop people from hitting me. It would stop attacks. Do what? Like just say the joke first? Yeah, yeah. Like in high school, I wasn't in class because I, I wasn't attending class all the time, but I had to be at the school because you had for truancy. So the only classes I would regularly attend were English class and choir class. My test scores were always really off the charts. I, was, I tested really, really high, but I never did any assignments. So right away in high school, my placement scores put me in the AP classes and in the advanced classes, but I never did any work, so I failed like 
it's two weeks in. But English class, I got kicked out of immediately. I went to my first AP English class. I walked in and the teacher was teaching Shakespeare. And at the time, I was a crazy, drugged out, partying kid living on the streets. But the parties that I was doing were different than most anybody else. We would actually get the complete works of Shakespeare and act out a play during the night. So me and my buddies would just like pick a character and go through a play and we'd all act out a play over the course of an evening and take a bunch of LSD and do Shakespeare. And at the time, that's what we were doing. And we were doing Midsummer Night's Dream. And uh, I went to English class and the teacher was teaching Midsummer Night's Dream and he was getting it wrong. And so he's like, well, I, I got up and corrected him. He's like, well, Mr. Stark, would you like to get up and teach the class? And I'm like, well, yeah. So I stood up and got up in front of the class and started holding court about Shakespeare. And the teacher immediately pulled me out of the class, opened up the door of the classroom, stood in front of it, and berated me in front of the whole classroom. Don't you ever talk to me like that. Don't you ever correct me in front of anybody again. How dare you contradict what I'm saying in front of the class and kick me out immediately. I went from correcting the teacher on Shakespeare to going into the class where they're learning punctuation and sentence structure. So how to do periods and commas and stuff. And so I walked up to the teacher and I'm like, hey, can I take your final? Because I know this stuff and I, I, can I just take the test? And she's like, can you? I'm like, yeah, please. Can I just take the test? So I did and I aced the test. And so that teacher let me be her de facto class assistant for the year. Even though I never went to classes in any of the other classes and even I wasn't in school for any of the other stuff, I would go to English class every single day. And I was there all the time because there I felt like I was being seen and it was respect and it was a really cool little island of fun in the rest of my life that I was going through that was just hell. I always thought everybody saw me as the fat, dirty, smelly guy that no one ever really liked. Maybe because I saw myself that way. I spent my life knowing I was a monster and that I was broken. And after I got out of that, I still knew in my heart that something with me was broken and wrong. I was bad. And even if people told me I was good, then they just didn't know all of me because if they found out all of me, they'd hate me. And then that completely changed when they found out all of me. <laughs> and so the last five years has been, I experienced ego death. We'll be right back. Hey, Amanda family, it's Jamie Heath here. And listen, I just wanted to jump in real quick and talk about therapy. How badly do we all need therapy? We all see what's going on in the world every day, all around us in our lives. We lose loved ones. We have a fight with our partners. Our kids are challenging. Our work is stressful. Whatever it may be, we all need someone to talk to when it just gets too hard. And so many times we just don't go there. But let me tell you, as someone who has experienced myself and been open about it, incredible suffering and pain, sometimes at my own hand and my own doing, had I not had therapy, someone to talk to, someone to help me uncover and unpack the things I was feeling, I might be repeating the same things I had done before. We all go through life facing challenges. Sometimes we just need a little extra support. So that's where BetterHelp comes in. BetterHelp.com. You can find a licensed therapist. You can find someone that actually fits into your schedule. You can change therapists. There's no charge for doing so. You just have to fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched. It's a simple process. So listen, visit BetterHelp.com slash What's Underneath today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash what's underneath welcome back to what's underneath masculinity can you take off your jacket yes thank you so can you talk about what was the ego death yeah so in 2018 my wife and my oldest daughter and i were watching the stillman douglas massacre and we were watching the footage the day after in parkland and we live in denver and in Denver, school shootings are really personal. Uh, we've had Columbine and the Aurora Theater shooting. And when Parkland happened, the day after, we were watching the, the news. And my wife and my daughter were having a big, tearful discussion about how could that ever happen? How could someone ever do this? And at the same time, I'm watching the news and I see the reporter interviewing this girl that has like blood splattered on her shirt. And the reporter's asking her a question, how did that make you feel? I'm like, what kind of stupid question is that? And so it made me mad. And I went to the toilet and wrote a Facebook post, as we all do. That's the first time I ever came out with I was almost a school shooter. And I think I was able to talk about it because my stepdad had died about a year previous. 
when he died, that finally freed my mom up from not being in physical danger if I talked about it. Because before that, if I spoke about the reality of my life, my mom might have gotten the shit beat out of her if my stepdad saw me on TV talking about it. So when he finally died, that freed me up, I think, to open up and finally express. And so that was the first moment where I said I was almost a school shooter. By the time I left the bathroom, my wife and my daughter had read the Facebook post and my wife knew about 60% of my history. My daughter knew about 20% of my history, but they didn't know any about anything about this. And so I just opened up and let them ask any question they could think of, dig as deep as possible. I'm going to answer everything completely truthfully. And then the next day, my local news reporter in Denver, his name's Kyle Clark, and they're having a, a mental health week on the news and they're asking for submissions over Twitter. And so my wife was like, hey, send that to Kyle. He might like it and I might show it on the news. And so I did. I sent him that Facebook post. The very next day, they had a camera crew come to my house to have me to film me reading that Facebook post. That got 17 million views in a week. And I went instantly from thinking it was a dark spot in my life. If anybody ever found out about it, they'd hate me and, and it, I would get attacked and it would just be this negative thing to getting hit with responses from all over the planet. It wasn't like a fan response. It was, hey, that was cool, and here's my diary, and here's all the pain I ever went through, and here's everything I ever experienced. And it was like this massive outpouring of personal ex expressions of depression and pain. And it was really profound to me because I saw that there isn't any difference in those pains. There's not difference in the kid in Pakistan who told me that he couldn't talk about his abuse because his bullies in his village would kill him. And then the kid in Chicago said he couldn't talk about his abuse because the kids in his town would kill him. It's not different with the model who's throwing up in her cup for her photo shoot and me when I was about to shoot up a school. That that's not different either. And it's all just expressions of I'm not good enough inside myself and I think I need to burn myself apart to fit life. Within a week of that, I had a choice. I saw that I could at least try to help. People were saying, hey, this is important. Please keep talking. I got a message from the survivors at Columbine, they said, please keep going. I got a message from the kids down in Parkland that had seen my story, and they said, please keep going. And that's what really made me decide, okay, I have this pivot point here. I can either stop or I can go. And I decided to go. And that made, meant that I had to drop everything of my past. I had to not have any secrets. I had to open up entirely about all of it because the only way to do it and be real about it is to be real about it. I had to let go of all of the shell that I had before and realize that it was just a shell, that it was just that old blanket of darkness that I had that I was wearing when I was a teen that was now tight and nasty and dirty and broken and ripped apart because it wasn't fitting anymore and I needed to take it off. I needed to, to, to rip off the old me and step into who I was and realize that it was okay to say that I was hurt. And it was okay to talk about me being abused and how I responded to that and to take accountability and response for my own actions and my own choices in that and to realize that that me of 30 years ago is not me today. And me today, I'm actually proud of for the first time in my life. Can you talk about why you felt you were a monster? Like why, like where, what, what, was, what was the origins of all of that? Like where did that begin? I started life in a really, really dark place. My birth father was the most violent, depraved person I've ever met. He was a Vietnam vet. And by the time I was born, he had been back for a couple of years. And I guess when he left, he was a good guy. But when I came back, he was a real monster. The abuse, the rapes, the beatings, the attacks that we suffered from my birth father were the kind of stuff that they make horror movies about. My mom at the time was more like Linda Hamilton from T2. Like she was like the survivalist ultra, we're gonna survive and escape this bastard kind of mom. To the point where we had survival words. If we were in a grocery store or anywhere and mom just offhand mentioned the word pocket, she could be talking anywhere. She could be like, hey, how's it going? $5 for change? Cool, pocket. If the word pocket came out of her mouth, that meant we were to grab the back pocket of her pants and we need to get out right now. That was a safety word. That meant we're under attack. He's here. We need to get out. We need to be safe right now. Grab my pants. We're out. 
so that me and my brother would be physically attached to my mom. We would run to get away from him, from battered woman shelter to battered woman shelter, and he would do things like kidnap us and say that we were dead until she came to, to confront him. He was a very vicious, evil man. When she finally escaped my father, she sent me and my brother up to Oregon. Up in Oregon, they sent us to live with my pedophile uncle, who wasn't abusive of me or my brother, but we were there when, in the truck outside the house, my uncle was currently raping a four-year-old and the four-year-old's mother. And so when we finally escaped that again, and we, my mom moved us back to Colorado, she was with my stepdad by that point. And it went from Stephen King movie to like Scarface. It went from like a horror movie to drugs and crime and lots of crack rock, lots of smoke and crack and, and drugs and cocaine and, and fights. And I'm like nine, 10 years old. And that's the, just the house we're living in. And I started off really shy, really kind of sweet. I love poetry and comic books and writing and reading. All of the things that I liked were not, not only just not encouraged, but ridiculed, made fun of and laughed at, like writing, poetry, all the things that I liked, I'd get made fun of just from my, at my house because of it. My parents and my brother would just tease me incessantly. And also because of my weight, I was fat and I, I was dirty because we were very nomadic. We were, I never was in a school longer than six months my entire life. I moved back and forth constantly, usually from Oregon to Colorado, as my parents were either evicted or the cops tried to show up or social workers investigated. When I would go to schools, I would be in a new school every six months or so and constantly the new kid. And I would always be getting picked on because I didn't have clean clothes and I was dirty and I was smelly and, and, and I would show up to school filthy. I was so filthy back then that to the point where I even went to school one day and had crapped my pants on the walk to school and just kept going to school and went to school the whole day with poop-filled pants. And the next day, I went to school, and the teacher had brought in a box of stuff, like pants and school supplies and a coat and all these new things for me, and like a box of stuff for me. And I come home, and I'm really excited, like, hey, check this out. And the very next day, we were gone. Because someone would know about them, so that, that you were too, being... Getting too close. That you were being that, abused. That means that the social teachers are looking too close, someone's investigating too much, and we need to get out before, before problems hit. So they, they just took that as a signal they need to get out. And so that really taught me early on that reaching out for help was dangerous. Because if I reach out for help, if I try to get some kind of support, then I'm going to go to foster care, my brother's going to go to foster care, my mom's going to go to jail, my stepdad's going to go to jail because I tried to get help. At the same time, now, now we're moving into 12, 13 years old. I really start becoming like the toxic one. Constantly getting picked on at school and fighting my brother and my stepdad at home. And when I mean fighting, I mean like actually physically punching, fighting my stepdad on a regular basis. I learned that if I started to get angry and aggressive at home, then that would stop that from happening too. So I would do stuff like spend all day long in the basement swinging a staff or swinging nunchucks and like practicing fighting and just trying my best to make myself as unattractive to hit as possible. When I was about 12 years old, I met the only good part of my life at that time, a kid named Mike. We met actually playing the original Mortal Kombat 1 video game in the arcade, so that's how old it was. We bonded instantly over comic books and deep conversation. I went to his house that afternoon for a meeting at the comic shop, and I was there all the time. I'd go spend weeks there. I would be there even when he was at school. I would skip school and go to his house. And he became like my home base. So whenever we were in Colorado, I, I had his phone number memorized, and I knew where he lived. So I knew whenever I was in the town, I had at least a safe place I could sleep and somewhere I could hang out for a little bit because I was kind of living in multiple worlds. When I was about 14 years old, I left home. I couldn't take it anymore with all the drugs and the fighting and the chaos, and I went homeless. And I started living on friends' houses and couches and trying to use as many resources as I can. And I also started self-harming right about that same time. I started cutting. When I would cut myself, it would be mine. I knew it was painful, I knew it was bad, I knew it was evil, I knew it was destructive, but it was mine. These days I describe my life back then like I was in a giant tsunami 
of pain, just kind of sloshing back and forth. Like I was in a mosh pit and I don't know if you guys have ever been in a heavy metal concert, but in the, there's the stage before the mosh pit. So like right between the barrier and then the mosh pit, that's, I call that the sardine can. If you're in that spot, because it's so tight, I could literally pick my feet up off the ground and I would kind of float through the crowd because it's so tight, you can't fall over. You're leaning on everybody around you. So the crowd just moves you. And it was a good metaphor for my life. I would say it all the time back then. Like I'm just picking my feet up and letting the pit move me. At the same time, I developed a, a group of, there weren't friends, but looking back, I call them disaster groupies. They were kids who kind of wanted to live vicariously through my darkness and see how far into the dark I could go, how far they could push me off the edge because they all got to go home, but I didn't. And like, would your mom be looking for you when you were like out for weeks? Uh -uh. No. No, she didn't care. I never once had my mom come to try to find me. I never once had her come search me out. She never went to the school to go check, to go have a meeting with the school about where I was at. None of that. Do you have any memories of any kind of relationship with her at all? Like, did it change? Yes, I still sometimes miss her. And my wife tells me I don't actually miss her. I miss the mom I had when I was little. And she's right, because when I was little, one of the best memories I ever had was sitting there watching Willy Wonka with her and singing all the songs. And that still makes me want to cry to this day, because it, it's, I, we would sit and sing every song with Willy Wonka to where I knew I had the whole movie memorized from beginning to end. And we would sit there together and sing it. And that was during that time when we were running from my father and she was very protective and very, and wasn't hooked on crack. Then all the other stuff started. And what would drive you to then ever go back home if you were like kind of mostly not there? Like It was where all my stuff was. Mm. I was completely walking around everywhere. I didn't have like a backpack or anything. I was just, I had a coat and shoes. And my, I, I, I would go back home to change my socks like once a month. And I would occasionally go back there to refill and try to get some food or try to, to get something. And it, without a doubt, every single time I would go there, I'd end up with a giant screaming, coked out fight or a giant argument and never ended up good. And so it just was kind of like show up, recharge, grab some crap and go. And what was your emotional state like? The best way I can explain that is when people would ask me back then, when Mike would ask me particularly, what do I want to be when I grow up? I would just say, I don't want to be when I grow up. That my emotional state was um, that I had already given up and I was the dirty, nasty monster. I was the, the one that was worthless. And the only thing that was good in my life was that I could was good at being bad. That disaster group friend group really kind of exacerbated that phenomenon where it really pushed me further and further into that dark because instead of talking about girls or sports or movies we talk about killing people so we talk about well if you want to shoot up a school how would you do it and if you're going to kill 10 people what would you do that was just the way our our nights would go that was happening at a house where my friend at the time, his dad paid the rent of the house and his dad bought all the food for the house, but his dad didn't live in the house. So the house ended up being a teenage flop house. Looking back, it was a bunch of depressed kids navigating that kind of emotion without any kind of adult supervision or any kind of rudder for what to do. Me and the two kids that lived there, we got jobs at the pizza place down by Casa Benita and we would go there and work. And my boss at the pizza place was my acid dealer. So we would go to work and get acid from the boss and then go home and party all night tripping acid and talking about mass murder. By the end of it, there was like 30 kids because we were having a party. So there was like 14 of us that were tripping acid and there was like another 10 to 20 kids. We even had a band for the bunch of kids had a band that was playing. And right in the middle of this party where everybody's a bunch of 16 year olds tripping acid having a party, the parents show up. And so, of course, that stops all the fun and everybody gets to go home and everybody, ha all the parties get shut down and they all got to go to their houses. And I got to go to the field behind Casa Bonita. And that was kind of the start of the dark slide to the end because that was like the loss of the stability of the, the someplace that I had. To st I had been staying there for like three months. I had burned out Mike's house. I got, his parents got so sick of me that I couldn't be at his house anymore because I was so dirty. So they didn't want me to spend the night at his house anymore. So this place was kind of like my last refuge and that had just gotten destroyed. Shortly after that, within like a week of that, I'm in Mike's tool shed, which ended up being kind of like my last spot home base, the last refuge. If I didn't have anywhere else I could sleep, if I was absolutely homeless for the night, I could go to Mike's tool shed and sleep in there. So I'm in there one night and 
I'm cutting myself so bad that there's a pool of blood formed on the ground underneath me. And I think I got to do something or I'm going to I'm going to die. Along my life, social workers had intervened a couple times. So I think, well, I'm going to call social services. I'm going to try to get help. So I knocked on Mike's back door and borrowed a bus fare and a phone book from his mom. And I called social services on myself. And it was dawn when I called. And it was like three or four in the afternoon when I got there. And when I get there, they actually had called my mom and brought her in too. And they say, okay, what's the problem? What are we here for? And I bring out a bloody razor blade, square box cutter style razor blade, throw it on the table. I say, that's what we're here for. And I pull up my arm, fresh cuts on it. I say, well, I'm, I feel like I'm nothing. I feel like I'm worthless. I feel like I'm at the bottom. And my mom gets him to believe that I was just making it all up, that I was just doing it for attention, that I did it all the time. I was just doing it for a rise, that, that it's not that serious, that it's all just superficial and she can take care of it. And they sent me home with her. And we get like three blocks away from the place and she turns to me and she snarls. Next time you should do a better job and I'll buy you the fucking razor blades. I'm like, okay, you want me to be a monster? I'll show you what a monster is now. And so instead of wearing that darkness like a blanket, I dove straight into it. I purposefully went and tried to burn down every bit of good in my life. If you were nice to me, I was gonna figure out what offended you and do that specific thing. I was consciously trying to break everything good in my world. So after nine months of that, of solid personal destruction, of being toxic as possible to everybody, I mean like outlandishly toxic, like offensive in every way possible, making the worst offensive comments you can think of. And after nine months of that, I'm now alone. I was surviving off of stealing food from the grocery store next to Casa Benita and um, free samples from there. I woke up one morning and it was snowing and I woke up to like an inch of snow around me and the walk to the two blocks to get from the field up to Casa Bonita, I wasn't just shaking. I was seizing. I was like, could barely breathe. Like my whole body was just shaking like crazy. And across the street from the school I was at, there was a building that said mental health. And I didn't know what it was for. I didn't know what it was about, but I knew last time when I warned them I was coming, they brought my mom in and I'm not doing that anymore. So I'm going to go in cold. And so I went into the built to the place that said mental health and I they had me meet a young lady. She was in her early twenties. And I don't really remember much about that conversation. Because all I remember is the very end when she said, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do, I can't help you. And when I walked out of that door, my brain snapped like a mirror. And that's the spot where everything just broke. And a couple things happened like right after the just bang, bang, bang. I found out what was underneath at the bottom of that tsunami. When you go all the way down to the bottom of that chaos that I was talking about, get right to the bottom of it, it gets really quiet and really still and all the waves go away because there's nothing left to lose. And right there, all the plans that I wanted to do crystallized in my head. I knew what I was gonna do. I was gonna go into the, either the school and attack the school food court, or I was going to go to the mall and attack the mall food court. And it's important to note that neither one of those places are what we call soft targets. The school had uniformed armed police officers in it at all times. And the mall had a police station like three doors down from the food court. The goal was suicide by cop. I was gonna kill a lot of people and then die in the action. And what's important to note is neither one of those were actually my target. That was the damage that I was going to cause, but the target was actually my parents. I wanted to make my parents deal with creating me. And I had talked through the plans with my disaster group friends. We had already figured out what, what I was going to do by, by talking with them. I knew the whole plan of what I was going to attack. And I knew where to get a gun because this was the mid-90s. The gangbangers hung up by the RTC building. And this was before metal detectors in schools. So they would regularly bring guns in and flash them in class all the time. They also bought and sold drugs from my family. And so I went to them like, hey, can you get me a gun? Hopefully one that shoots a lot of bullets. I was like, yeah. Give me an ounce of weed. For me, it was very easy. I went to my mom's house and one of my brother's druggy friends sleeping on the floor, I just grabbed the bounce out of his pocket and took it and took it to the guy. I'm like, here you go. Like, All right, give me three days. You're set. So I was waiting three days to get the gun. And in that three-day time, I didn't think about it at the time, but looking back, I think I was saying goodbye. I was going to people that I cared about in a much more calm way and saying thank you for keeping me alive. And doing stuff like giving away all my comic books. And I went to Mike at the end of that three days. And when I knocked on his door, I was in tears. And when he answered, he didn't ask me what was wrong. He brought me inside and 
He sat me down and gave me some food, gave me a shower, and he kept on telling me, you're a good kid in a shit world. What he really did was he put the tiny granular bits of humanity back on the bottom shelf of my life. What he did was treat me like I was a person. And it changed my life. It was like a, the waves were about to break and crash over everything. And when he did that, it like pushed the water back. And I was able to instead of sloshing back and forth in that tsunami, I was finally able to put my feet on the ground and like breathe for the first time in years. And if you ask him what he did, he just says he does, did what a friend does. He didn't even remember the day. He just did what a normal friend does. To me, it fundamentally changed my entire life. It completely changed who I am. It was like resetting the clock on my humanity. Like it pushed the, pushed the walls back a bit. And I stayed at his house for a week. I never went and got the gun. And he is still my best friend to this day. But it's important to note that it's not like it was a light switch that flipped. It wasn't like, ding, everything's better. Like, no, but the hell of my family was still the same. The chaos at home was still the same. The hell of my life was basically still the same. What he did was let me be able to see myself as a me for the first time in a long time. Now, that was when I was in between the age of 16 and 17. Okay, now we're going to fast forward two years to the night of my 19th birthday. Mind you, the chaos and violence at home had continued along the same path, still the same cracks, still the same drugs, still the same violence. Night of my 19th birthday, I'm planning on committing suicide. I wanted to kill myself, and I wanted to do it by overdose. But the day of my 19th birthday, I was trying to act like nothing was wrong. So I went to Mike's house. And so Mike is a very social person himself. He has a social circle of his own. And in this social circle, there's a girl named Amber. Okay. And Amber was always really nice to me. She was really friendly to me. And so he's like, hey, we're going to kick it at Amber's today. Right on. That's a great last day. And we'll spend it with two of my favorite people and then go to the, back to the field and end my life. And we get to Amber's house. And that wasn't it at all. It was actually a surprise birthday party for me. And I walked into a room full of about 14 people saying happy birthday. And they had baked me a blueberry peach pie. And I walked past him and dropped my drugs in the toilet. And that was the last time I ever tried to kill myself. And Amber's also one of my best friends of this day. We just saw a concert just a month and a half ago. So. Can you talk a little bit about what you were feeling in that moment, that lengths or the end of what a human being can take without what they need? And then how these small things started to put you back together again and how simple they were, but yeah. The simpleness is the key because everybody else in my life looked at me like I was, looked at me like I was a project or a monster. People would try to help me, like, oh, we have this program we're going to get you into. We have this, this journal we need you to write. We have these 12 steps we need to go through. None of that was a person. That was just a project. That was a check mark on your list because somehow I'm broken. You think you can fix me. And that just all that reaffirmed my own self-image that I was broken and I was wrong. And they're all telling me I'm right. And what Mike did was just be with me. He never tried to judge me. He never tried to tell me, never tried to fix me. He just sat with me. He saw you. He saw me. He, he's, and to be seen at a time when I didn't even feel invisible, I felt erased. Like I felt like a void. And Mike never saw me as that, ever. Never once, we've been friends now. I'm 44 years old, so 32 years. He's never once judged me for any of this life that I've had. He's never once said that I was wrong or that I was, that I was broken. He just said that I was a good kid in a shit world and continually tried to get me help, continually tried to, to, in his own way, try to help me without making it seem like I was a project that he wanted to fix. Like one of the biggest things he did for me when I was 19, almost 20 years old, the final way I got my mom's hooks out of me and left the house for the family for the last time was when he went to college for Kansas City Art Institute. He went to, K to KCAI and um, he moved me out there with him for a year just because. He's like, dude, you're coming with me to college. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, yeah, pack your bags. I'm leaving, leaving next week. We're gone. And so he did move me out to Kansas City for a year. And that had a dual purpose. Not only did it give me stability that know that I can get a job, I can make my own money, I can be my own person, but it pissed my family off. Like, how dare you leave us? How dare you get out of us? How dare you think that you're better than us? So when I got back, that was disconnection enough where I'm finally able to, like, I'm done. I'm out. And it, that was the, the very first start of my recovery. There's always a cry, like at that moment. What is coming up? Like, why do you think that's happening? If you notice when I'm talking about it, I don't cry when I'm talking about the pain. I don't cry when I'm talking about the abuse. I don't cry when I'm talking about my father or, my, or mom or any of that stuff. 
I cry when I talk about Mike saving my life because I, I don't think I ever thought I'd make it. Between Mike and my kids and my wife, those are the three parts of my life that saved me completely. That's the part I'm most thankful for and I will do anything to keep and do anything to make proud. And I never thought I could make anybody proud. So the fact that I, I'm able to at all means that I, I, I should keep going. They must be so proud of you now. I hope so. So what did like your healing and recovery look yeah. like? And I'm also curious, like, because you were obviously healed enough that you didn't want to kill people, but mm -hmm. then but you still wanted to kill yourself. So mm -hmm. like, what, what was the difference between what happened in that chapter versus like as far as healing? And well, recovery? shortly after that birthday party, I had the very first step in my full recovery process. Mm -hmm. And that's a thing I call acknowledgement. It actually happened one day, just like a lightning bolt. I was still working with my family. My mom was running a Veterans of Foreign Wars bar in Denver, and I got a job as a bartender there too. And so I was serving drinks one night there, and my aunt came in the place. She was one of the ones that was really toxic in my life. And she's standing drinking with her friends, and I'm serving them drinks. And she just is talking to them, and I don't know what the conversation was, but she turned around and says, oh, you know, Aaron, you know you love me. And I said, no, I don't. And I don't know why I said it. I wasn't planning on saying it, but I just stopped and said, no, actually, I don't. She said, what? I said, no, you tried to kill yourself in front of me. You tried to molest me when I was younger, and I don't actually love you. And it was like an anvil jumped off of my chest. It was like the biggest release I had ever felt. And she started screaming. It started her into a big, mad scream. She started yelling at me behind the bar. I didn't hear any of it. For me, it was like just a static. That was such a big revelation for me that that time with my aunt that I'd started a process I did with everybody that hurt me. So I went along on a campaign starting then where I went to all the different abusers in my life, I went to my mom, my stepdad, my grandparents, my uncle, like everybody that hurt me in my life and told them exactly how I felt. And it was really important to not do it in an accusatory, retaliatory way. I didn't ever do it saying, you hurt me and you need to pay. It was always, our relationship has fundamentally changed. I actually don't love you and I'm done. And I walked away. So one of the best things in my life these days is I never sit and think, man, if they could only knew how I felt. They all know. And so I don't ever have any regret over that. And that was the biggest step towards personal recovery. I found so much power in that kind of opening up about my actual feelings, dropping the fake niceness that we have. We constantly are, oh, how you doing? Oh, I'm fine. That crap, I think, is one of the most toxic things we've ever done as a society. I think the more we can eliminate that fake toxic niceness, especially with people that we actually love, people actually in our lives that matter. I can understand doing that to a convenience store clerk that you're only going to see for 30 seconds as you're walking by. But when it's your aunt who's abused you your entire life and she says, oh, you know you love me. Oh, yeah, you know I do. That's fake. I didn't. And if I told her that, it'd be a lie. And so I decided I wasn't going to lie anymore. I'm just going to tell the truth of how I feel. And you might not like it and it might hurt, but the truth is going to set me free. I saw them all at their worst. I didn't have any respect for any of them to have any kind of fear. I was much more afraid of someone like Mike's parents judging me. Now, Mike's parents, I actually cared about their opinion. And I actually, re that really mattered to me. So if Mike's mom was disappointed in something I was doing, that really affected me. Mm. So how did telling the truth change you? The personal power that I've gotten from being able to talk about my truth, it's mind-blowing and weird and exhilarating and powerful all at the same time. I feel like what I do when I'm doing what I do is I get up on stage or I get up on camera and I say, hey, I had a really bad life. I'm better now. Please be nice. And the people listening are like, holy shit, be nice? I'm going to write that down. Be nice. Hold on. Can we pay you a lot of money so we can come out here and tell us to be nice in front of all these federal agents because they don't know how to be nice. And it's such a simple thing for my side of it. Treat that kid in the dark that thinks, that tells himself that he hates himself constantly and tells himself that everything in his life is bad and he's the fault of it. Tell him that he's wrong because everybody else is telling him that he's right. And to me, that's a simple equation. But that's part of the catharsis. That's part of the journey of going through it. I, my, I live by a motto, the way out is through. That's the, the biggest motto of my life. I have it on a, a plaque on my wall behind my chair. The way out is through. And you can't go around the problem. You can't go over it. You can't go, you can't go under it. You have to go through it. But when you go through it, you will get to the other side. Because that, the, the, the biggest thing I learned with coming out with my truth is the only thing constant in life is change. The only thing that's absolutely certain is that tomorrow is going to be different than today. It might not be better and it might not be worse, but it will be different. 
And so we have choices with that. We can either adapt with the changes and move with the changes along with it and become one with the change itself, or we can resist the change and get worn down by it and get, end up like pebbles on the beach. I prefer to adapt with the change. So I remember all of the pain that I went through, and I try to use that, try to help someone else not have to go down that path and to see if they are, that they're not alone. When you're in the worst of the worst prison and you do something wrong, they put you in solitary. We punish our worst killers with being alone. And if that's what your life is, then that's what we need to fix. Just as far as your recovery journey, like any other like main themes besides the t telling people that hurt you? Yeah, the, other, the next step in my recovery was the birth of my first child. That finally gave me something outside of me that I could love and that, I, that mattered and gave me a goal. I had never had a goal before in my life, but that gave me a goal. And the goal was give that kid a life that's not mine. And so I, I purposefully took my, what happened to me in the parenting that I had growing up and used that as an example of how to parent my children. I just do the opposite. So I tell my kids I love them so much it's annoying. I'm at every game, I'm at every show, every, every sporting thing, I'm at all the different class things. And my kids have all gone to the same elementary, middle school, and high school. Because that's, to me, that's really, really important. So I look at it like I won. Mm -hmm. Okay, now belt. Belt. It's a superhero comic book belt. It's cool. Yeah, it's comic books. Most of my style is all about superheroes and Marvel and comic books. <laughs> comic books being my saving grace was really true. The two characters I always loved the most, there were uh, Nightcrawler and Archangel. But uh, Nightcrawler looks like a demon. Like he has a tail and blue fur and three fingers on each hand and yellow glowing eyes. And his power is he teleports in a burst of flame and smoke. Um, but reality, he's not a demon. He's a really sweet swashbuckling type of guy. He's actually the soul of the team, and really a romanticist and loves like old pirate movies. And he's like the, the sweetest guy on the whole team. And then the other character I really loved was named Archangel. And Archangel started as an angel with wings. Like he's a guy with big feathered angel wings. And then a villain kidnapped him, chopped his wings off, and replaced him with evil metal wings. And these evil metal wings kill people on their own, and he had to fight against his own wings to get back to his power. So I really always identify with those two characters. One of the things that I notice about you, and that is just unbelievably poignant in the context of what you were almost driven to do, is that you are such a sweet, kind person. Well, thank you very much. I try. Amber and Mike have told me that same kind of thing too, that that's why, that's why Amber said that, that she always was fine with me when I was around. Not all of Mike's friends were super nice like that. So there was a couple times where we would have a group gathering of people, there were like seven, eight people in his house and some kid would stand up and be like, yeah, I don't want to hang out with him anymore. He just smells filthy and we needs to get out of here. Years later, I talked to Mike and Amber, like why, how come you guys were the ones that never did that to me? And Amber was like, well, it's because you were like the sweetest guy. You just wanted to hang out with us and talk about your comics and your movies and your poetry. And you, just, you didn't really want to do anything like that. You just wanted to be nice and sweet. So I didn't, I didn't have a problem with you. And I didn't see myself like that at all. I saw myself as dirty and nasty and toxic, but she didn't. How did it feel to um, hold in until like 2018 or whatever it was, like this secret or whatever of like what you had planned to do back then? And and did you tell anyone or who well, knew? And secret's not really the right word because it wasn't like I hid it. I talked about most of it with Mike for years, but even he didn't know all of it until... I came out with my story in 2018. But it, again, it wasn't like a secret. It wasn't that I was hiding it. In the scale of craziness, the school shooting part was the least surprising surprise ever to them. While they didn't think that I had that planned originally, they totally like, yeah, no, we make sense. That makes sense. It all lines up. We see how that all happened. As Columbine was happening, I had just moved back to Colorado like uh, three weeks previous. I'm getting phone calls from all of my friends, both in Colorado and in Oregon, to make sure that wasn't me, that I wasn't the one in the school killing everybody. It was like a non-secret secret, but it was also pretty much invisible because as I grew older, I just didn't have to interact with that anymore. I had left that dark past of mine behind and I had kind of written it off like it was just a dark mark in my life that if anybody ever really knew, they'd hate me, but I'm not gonna, I'm not, they already hate me enough. I don't need to add more onto the fire of more things they could hate me for. At the same time, and I was never ashamed of any of it, so if anybody ever asked, I'd be fine telling them. Wait, that's what I mean. Like, did you have shame about it? Yeah, no, no. When I was a teen, I did. And in that, in that between 17 and 19, I had a lot of shame about that, what I had planned. But today, I didn't. The, these days, I didn't have any shame about it because it was just part of my life. 
You know, it was just my reality of my existence. And I can't be ashamed about any of it because it made me who I am now. Even in 2018, before I came out with my story, I was still kind of an asshole, but I was still proud of myself. I had made, a, I had family and kids and a, a nice job and I was trying to make my life better and I wasn't in that toxic place before. And so I would, in a much better place. But still, knowing deep down that I was still broken. So I was still really self-deprecating and still made a lot of more fun of myself than anybody around. And I just figured that was going to be my life forever until the day that it wasn't. Have those voices stopped inside? The self-deprecation, yes. There's the other side of the thing I did at the same time I came out with my TED Talk where I lost 200 pounds. So as on the stage of my TED Talk, under the shirt, I actually had the bandages from my weight loss surgery at the same time because I did it all in the same month. And so it really was like stripping away the old, starting the new. We're going to let down the past that I've been carrying forever. And it felt like an ill-fitting suit. It felt like I had been wearing the same clothes for a long time. And it was time to go ahead and change my outfit. And so I did. And it was scary. But it also kind of wasn't. It was exciting. And it was a chance to finally be. I went through more personal change and recovery and adjustment in my own life than most people that I've known. And so I'm proud of that. I'm really proud of the fact that I was able to overcome and turn into the man I am today. I made myself a different man so I could be a good father for my family and a good husband to my wife. And my kids aren't me. And so like I said, I won. It was a long fight and I'm still going, but I won. We'll be right back. Hey, Man Enough listeners, it's Jamie Heath here. And while we explore what's underneath masculinity, I just wanted to jump in and talk about therapy, how important it is, both to encourage our vulnerability and our self-discovery, to empower us to lead a more fulfilling life. And you know, the first step is recognizing that you need help. It was for me. The turning point for myself came when I lost touch and I started engaging in self-destructive behaviors. That's when I realized that therapy was necessary. The most challenging part was moving forward to actually find a therapist and schedule a therapy session. How would I do that? But with the encouragement and support of the vulnerable men in my life who kept holding me accountable, I did take that courageous step. So let's fast forward 20 years in my own life. I have become an advocate for therapy. I encourage men around me in my life to experience its incredible benefits. And remember, as a man, seeking therapy demonstrates your strength, not your weakness. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. They specialize in guiding you through the process, and the best part is you can do it all from the comfort of your own home. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. So just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash what's underneath today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash What's underneath? Welcome back to What's Underneath Masculinity. Yeah, I guess. Okay, sure. sure. Okay. When do you feel the most vulnerable? That's a strange question because I kind of don't. I both do feel really vulnerable and open, but also not vulnerable in the sense that I'm not in danger of being attacked because of it. Vulnerability in my mind implies that there's a, a, a sense of it that can mean that, that I'm in danger of being hurt. I feel exhilarated in being vulnerable in the sense that I'm exposing myself to the possibility of that, but I'm also not afraid of that possibility anymore. I'm no longer scared of being vulnerable and I'm no longer scared of having anybody judge or throw slings and arrows at me because today I'm really happy with me and I just have reached a state of being comfortable with being vulnerable and open. But also you've been proven your vulnerability has been mirrored back. It, it, it changed your life. It opened all the doors. Like it, it totally changed my life. When we are walking through life, we stratify everybody in different sections. And it's usually by the first stereotype of what their profession is and what their social status is. And I spent my life in the bottom of those social stratus where I lived in projects, lived on the streets, druggy parents, dropped out of high school, that kind of social stratus. And now I get to go into places full of the entire opposite of me. Rooms full of federal agents that have spent their entire lives being well off, having well-adjusted families, having successful lives. And after I talk and after I do what I do, those barriers are gone. I've had the same terrible discussions with hardcore Republicans as Democrats, as atheists, as, as Christians, as every kind of 
of social separation that you could think of. It's extremely powerful to have the ability to drop down the suppositions that we all have that make stereotypes happen. When I walk through the room before a speech and everybody doesn't know who I am, they all have a supposition. They've looked on the card. They say, oh, he's almost a school shooter. Maybe I have put him in a box. And then after I get off stage and I have a line of these same people wanting to hug me and cry and say, well, when I was a kid, I was abused too. Like, and it's never the questions about policing or teaching or, or, or counseling. It's about humanity. It's about real life and the details of each person's existence. Yes. When do you feel the most beautiful? I don't know if I ever have. I think that I'm the best physically today that I've ever been, but I don't know that I've ever called, thought of myself as beautiful. I've seen myself as adequate, and I'm proud of me internally. What about handsome? I think that I'm the most handsome when I am just about to get on stage, when I'm just about to get up on stage and, and speak. And it's not because of my appearance, it's because that's the most confident and the most sure of myself that I am at that moment. That I know my purpose, I know what I'm here for, and I know what I'm going to do, and I know that I'm really good at it. And that's the one time that I think that I shine the best. It took a long time for me to even get to the point where I could monetize speeches and get paid to go speak somewhere because the thought of getting paid to talk about my life and about my own abuse was weird. And to get paid to tell someone I was almost a school shooter was really weird. And so that took a lot to get through. Um, but then after I did, I got more and more confident of my ability to do it. So when I get up on stage, I put myself on autopilot and I just let my story go. And it's the most confident in myself that I ever am. Or glasses first. We, can you like really not see us? Will it be hard for you to talk? I can talk. If, if you're okay with it, I think it'd be beautiful if the bandana was last. Yeah, yeah sure. It's nice to Well, thank you. I should have given that answer for the being handsome. I think that my wife did a great job with my beard. <laughs> In the pre-interview, you were talking to my mom about the vulnerability of accountability and mm -hmm. like how accountable you are with your wife. Can you yes. just talk about that? I just need to hear it. And like was... the issue with men around that. You yeah. know what well, the couple things with my wife that were really important. First off, when I first got with her, I, the biggest step that I ever did was I had to show her all of my tricks. I, I had spent my life lying and manipulating and trying to survive by that. And so when I got with my wife, I'm like, all right, this is the tactics that I've always used. Here's all the tricks I've ever done. Here's the things that I've lied about. Here's the way that I've lied about them. This is what I can do. If you ever see any of this, let me know, because there's a red flags. But here's all of my flags for you to see. It's, it's really fundamentally important in my relationship with my wife, for both of us to fundamentally know that I'm not with her because she's all I can get. I'm with her because she's all I want. And it's fundamental that I know that same thing. That both of us know at any time, if, if it went sideways, I could walk out, I could get another woman, I could go find another wife. I don't ever want to. But it's fundamentally important, in my opinion, that both of us know that we're not the only ones we can get. Because in my opinion, that breeds more of a codependency. That if I'm not with you, then I'm not complete. She's totally complete without me. I'm complete without her. But we make each other so much better together. That she's made me a better man, and I think I've made her a better woman but not because we thought we had to. Not because she thought she had to fix me and I was some kind of messed up man. No, just over the course of our relationship together and her loving me the way she does and her being so supportive of me and her letting me express myself with emotions and her letting me be vulnerable to the planet in a way that we never anticipated. And that kind of, of support and acknowledgement and just teamwork really has been so vitally important to not only the process of me talking, but the whole process of my recovery. Because she gave me the ability to be me and not be afraid of that anymore. To not be worried that me was going to be bad. So yeah, that's what I mean. I, that, that part makes me cry. The happy makes me cry. The love part makes me cry. I don't ever cry about the abuse. I cry about my life today because I'm so freaking happy today. I have so much good in my world today. Like my kids are my best friends. My wife is my best friend. I have a great life. I 
Yeah, I work at a gas station during the day. That doesn't matter. I, I live a, a, a humble existence with humble people and I have a great time doing it. So bandana. Yeah, bandana. So why in your body, in your skin, in your journey, why is it a good place to be? Because about five years ago, I thought this body was gonna kill me. I was really unhealthy. I was 500 pounds. I had gotten a really bad cellulitis infection in this leg. So I'm 500 pounds, I'm in the hospital, with three, four surgeons around my table. Three of them wanna cut my leg off and one of them tells, says, no, we can save it. Okay, so I managed to keep my leg. Then after that, I ended up going home. Had to have my son help me clean myself. It was that bad. And I couldn't walk, I couldn't get out of the chair, I couldn't even walk more than across my house. And I am as close to despondent as I've been since my teenage years. Crying and I'm blubbering and I'm having a just a total meltdown and it gets as close to de that depression as I've been since my teen years. And I'm like, I scream out, I just don't wanna be here anymore, I wanna crawl into a hole and disappear. And right then, my oldest daughter stood up and she stood in front of me and she pointed at me and said, no, you're not. You're gonna fix yourself, you're gonna make yourself better, you're gonna be the dad that I need, you're gonna fix yourself now because I need a father now and you're gonna do it. And so I did. That day was the last day of my life I've ever had a drop of soda pop. I went the very next day to a nutritionist and got on a diet plan and I decided to try to fix myself and that started my weight loss journey. And after a year of that, I had lost 100 pounds from weight loss and then I lost another 100 pounds after having gastric sleeve surgery and I became the dad that they need. Instead of me needing the kindness, I needed to show humanity and compassion to my family. And I needed to step up and be the man that I needed to be. By dropping the self-destruction and by dropping the self-hatred and dropping the self-loathing and actually fixing myself because what was killing myself was that. It wasn't that I was eating myself, it was that I was killing myself with depression. And I had to stop it. Fast forward to five years later and I walk three and a half miles each way to work. And I haven't had a drop of soda. I drink nothing but water and tea and haven't had any pasta or rice in years. And it's the, one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. That's why I still have the scars on my belly. These dots on my belly are from the weight loss surgery. That's why I have a little bit of extra, little bit of extra skin down there because it's all the dots from they did laparoscopic surgery on me. And last question, what does it mean to you to be man enough? To me, the words man enough means to own all the responsibility and accountability for every decision that you've made. To not throw that responsibility off onto somebody else. To realize the potential damage and potential good that you can do to everybody around you. That if you decide that you're going to be toxic, then you will breed toxicity. But if you decide you're gonna be good, then you can breed goodness as well. And to me, that's being man enough. Stepping up and realizing that that fake masculinity bullshit, that stuff of step up and step up or lip and, and be a man, that kind of fake macho bullshit is what causes men to lash out in self-hatred. Being man enough is being comfortable in yourself and realizing that when you woke up today, you were good enough and that tomorrow you're gonna to be good enough too. And it's okay to fail and it's okay to cry and it's okay to be vulnerable and it's okay to let someone know that you love them. And it's okay to let someone know that you're hurt. And it's okay to reach out for help. I think that men are taught early on that help is bad. That when you're a young boy, violence is currency. If, if your violence is currency and you go home and your home life is hell and every adult around you says how terrible you are and how hellish everything is and how you're worthless, then you go to school and everything's hellish too. Then how can you expect that boy to grow up into a man that doesn't think that everything's hell. So I think being man enough is knowing that for the next generation, what we need to show them is that emotions are okay, that it's okay to cry. Bravery is acting in the face of fear. What could happen if someone is acting in the face of fear and opens up about that pain? How powerful could that be? What could the next me talk about that can actually help change the world that way? To me, that's the real important stuff, the real moving down the chain, that the next one who is really scared to talk about it, maybe then he'll open up then maybe then we'll see another facet of this pain that we go through. Because my experience is my experience. And it's not the same for every school shooter. It's not the same for every kid who's gone through that dark, but it's an examination of what that path is like. And there's a lot more of me than people want to realize. 
There's a very small sliver of people that are gonna follow through with those attacks, very small amount. But there's a giant gray area of people that think they could, should, or might. And those are the people that I think we can reach every single day by just showing them simple human compassion and that they can matter and they can exist in this world even when it's intense, that they can make it through the darkness. I never thought that me talking about this would be anything. I never thought that if I ever spoke about this, people would care. I thought that it would be a black mark that if anybody found out, they'd hate me. And instead, I got the opposite. By talking about my life, if I can help even one person not turn into me, then I'm gonna keep talking until I don't have a voice. How do you feel right now? Good. Empowered. I don't feel vulnerable. I feel like I'm normal. Yeah, I, I feel a lot less nervous about being naked in front of you guys than I anticipated. I didn't even realize I was gonna get naked till the day before yesterday. So, <laughs> you guys sent me the video to watch and I didn't bother to watch the whole video. I watched the beginning of it with Janelle Monae. I'm like, oh, I like her, that's cool. I, didn't, I remember that video, that's really fun. But I didn't watch the rest of it. And so when I got the email listing about what I need for this, they're like, okay, make sure you have layers, make sure you have all the stuff. And by the way, make sure your underwear is presentable. I'm like, underwear? Underwear? Oh, that's what I'm doing. All right then. <laughs>